Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This week we are remembering the life and legacy of a venerable leader, a dear friend, a real interfaith OG. We're talking, of course, about the esteemed Reverend Dr. Clark Lobenstein, founding director of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington, who passed away on October 15th. Joining me this week to talk about how Clark's work and friendship impacted their lives are Dr. Siva Subramanian of the United Hindu Jain Temple Association and Tom Wolfe, of the Annapolis Quaker Meeting. Good morning, gentlemen. Glad to have you here. Good morning. Glad to be here. All right. Dear listeners, if you didn't have the pleasure of knowing Clark Lobenstein, for your benefit, I want to share a little bit of his biography from his obituary in the Washington Post and the in memoriam uh, that was written up by the Interfaith Conference on their website. The son of a foreign service officer and the grandson of a Presbyterian missionary to China, Clark was born into public service. By the time Clark was 10 years old, he lived in five countries on three continents, China, Colombia, Lebanon, Peru, Germany, and the U.S. These years abroad exposed him to a wide variety of cultures and religions. In 1963, Clark graduated from Bethesda Chevy Chase High School and then attended St. John's College in Annapolis, during which time he participated in the March on Washington. After graduation, he spent three years in alternative service as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. He worked as a social worker and a Presbyterian minister until he was called to his role as an interfaith leader. In 1979, Clark began what would become his life's work in his position as the founding executive director of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington, the world's first staffed organization that brought together the Islamic faith community with Jewish, Protestant, and Roman Catholic faith communities. Under Clark's leadership, the IFC expanded to include the Baha'i, Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Sikh, and Zoroastrian faith communities. Clark worked tirelessly with faithful collaborators from other religious traditions to promote dialogue, reconciliation, social justice, and community building across the metropolitan region, and also to share with one another what he liked to call glimpses of God. He retired after his 35th anniversary with the IFC in 2014. Clark Lobenstein passed away on October 15th. 2018. And of course, we extend our sincere condolences to Clark's wife, Reverend Carol Crumley, and the entire family. Before I get into uh, some questions and reflections with my guests this morning, I want to play a little bit of an interview I did in 2011 with Reverend Clark Lobenstein so we can bring him here into the studio with us. The Interfaith Conference was founded in 1978. I came in April 79 as the first director. And the inspiration for it was that we jointly work on issues of justice, which is foundational to our member faith communities, and that we also must deepen understanding and respect for each other. 
in our diverse traditions. So the founding members were the Islamic, Jewish, Protestant, Roman Catholic faith communities in this region. And since then, Baha'i, Buddhist, Hindu, Jain, Latter-day Saint, Sikh, and Zoroastrian have joined. So it's one of the most diverse religious, interreligious organizations in the United States and the world. It is one of the very few, unfortunately, in my opinion, that does both work for deepening understanding and respect and dialogue and also work for justice in a metropolitan area. And, and, and we defy, happily, we defy the, the experience of so many of these groups, volunteer or staffed, which believe that when they do the dialogue work or do the justice work, they'll, they'll somehow fall apart if they do the other one. And our experience is just the opposite. It is out of the trust developed in the mutual understanding and deepening of respect for each other that we're compelled to work together in the community and it's in working together in the community on justice issues that we're asking why we do that and forced back into the dialogue with each other. We discovered very early on that we could gather people around the table uh, at the Interfaith Conference who might not come together for other reasons. And so this happened uh, certainly with homeless service providers. It happened with uh, the starting of the capillary food bank. It happened with those who wanted to work on urban gardening. It's happening now in our partnership uh, in an ongoing way with the environment around Greater Washington Interfaith Power and Light as a program of the IFC. So interfaith work is a natural expression in this community of the fact that we work together, we go to school together, we are in PTAs together, we live next door to whatever, people of many different races, cultures, nationalities, and faiths. And so when I know people of different faiths, uh, it's very easy then to also connect with them as I'm working on a project together or working on, and I'm inherently building trust and, and relationships and understanding about a different faith community in the process of that uh, relationship as well. I think it, it benefits us uh, greatly because it multiplies the resources that are available and the collaboration that makes that possible so that when we have congregations in a neighborhood responding to a neighborhood need of some kind, one congregation may be stretched too far to be able to address that in a meaningful way by itself. But when two or five or 25 come together, then it becomes much more manageable. But it's that collaboration, and in the process of collaboration, usually talking about why we collaborate together on that issue and why we're involved in community service that makes such a difference. And, and makes interfaith work very natural and a wonderful opportunity for our community. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We just heard a clip from an interview with Reverend Dr. Clark Lobenstein recorded in 2011. Reverend Lobenstein passed away just a few weeks ago, and here to help me celebrate his life today are Dr. Siva Subramanian and Tom Wolf, both of whom worked with Clark on the board of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington. Tom, uh, tell me a little bit about how you first met Clark. A friend of mine came into my office and said, you have to meet this man, <laughs> Clark Lobenstein, Reverend Clark Lobenstein, who's bringing the world's religions together. I think he actually said, like, beads on one string. Huh. And he insisted, his name was Maury Silverman, and he insisted that I call Clark right away, which I did, and he facilitated the conversation. And uh, in short, it just felt like destiny. I had been very interested in interfaith work, but I was sort of doing it by myself. Hmm. And it was just a pivotal moment in my life when I met Clark, and then I became treasurer 
of the Interfaith Conference. For, you just got thrown into the deep end of the swimming pool. Huh? Pretty much. <laughs> I did that for 15 years. Wow. And, uh, but it was just an amazing meeting. He, he had the ability to inspire people for interfaith work more than almost anyone I've ever met. And what, what were the, the special qualities that you saw in Clark when you first met him? I would have to say first was his enthusiasm for both each individual who was in front of him and interfaith work. And it was almost like you could, at least my experience of him, was almost like you could watch the wheels turning. How can I get this person enthused about working with hmm. bringing the world face together in hmm. cooperation? But he was brilliant at uh, finding the highest, I think, in people. Hmm which he did with me. He, he found a role for me. I, I mean, I really didn't want to be treasurer <laughs> of a struggling nonprofit. Uh -huh. uh, back then it was struggling financially. It's stable now, but it was not something that I would have chosen to do had it not been for Reverend Lobenstein. Hmm. He really could find, I think, the highest in people. Hmm. Siva, how about you? Um, you know, first of all, you know, uh, it has been a very long uh, time relationship. It actually uh, goes back to 1981 uh, when he was doing, uh, now it is big, you know, in terms of the interfaith concept, but at that time he was just doing an annual show. And uh, primarily for the few years he was doing it with the Abrahamic faith groups. And, and then he started making a call to have, could you get anybody from the Hindu faith? to come and participate in the show. Even though I talked to him only on the phone, you know, I had somebody arranged for the show. Hmm. And so no, you had you hadn't met in person. I had not point. met him in person. It was on the phone uh -huh. and just arranged for somebody to go to participate in the show. Okay. And it happened intermittently for the next few years. And then in nineteen eighty nine, so till then we have been only conversing on the phone, hmm. you know. And in eighty nine uh, we started actually, you know, meeting, you know, and then I attended some of the um, board meetings, and then he asked uh, uh, to say, "Hey, I I, I belong to the Sivavishnu Temple in Lanham, Maryland," and he says, "Could Sivavishnu Temple join interfaith conference?" Just like you said, uh, Tom, that you know, he was is always he was it was it, the cogs were turning, you know, in terms <laughs> of. So he says, "Okay, you know." They have already gotten sick faith, you know, in, in into the IFC. Okay. And so he wanted to extend beyond, you know, in terms uh -huh. of that. And so I said, let me think about it and then get back to you. And then we realized this may be an opportunity because we have about 10, 11 temples in the Washington metropolitan area. And so this provided the seed and the opportunity for the temples to come together. We have been functioning in silos before that. Mm -hmm. And so we really joined together and formed first the United Hindu Temple Association and decided to join. And then subsequently our Jain friends, you know, which is another Eastern distinct religion, also said we will join together, let us form the United Hindu Jain Temple Association. Mm. So in September 1992, we joined the IFC, and uh, and for that year or so, an observation uh, that we were there, it was an, a great experience to see him. As you know, Tom says, his enthusiasm, energy, 
and uh, and then the respect that he had for all the religions. Mm-hmm. So Clark was and, and the IFC was instrumental in then in in motivating this uh, uh, association to come about for yeah. the the Hindu and Jain temples of the DC metropolitan area actually to be formalized yes. as a group. In, were, were they communicating before then? Not, not really. I mean, mm. we were just probably, in, we know each other because we are in the same community that mm. he, he or she belongs to that temple or this, and but not necessarily anything going together. Mm-hmm. This absolutely is, you know, was a reason why we were able to come together. And, and, and now we have existed for 25 plus years. Wow. And we just celebrated the, you know, the Silver Jubilee, mm. you know, last month. Okay. You know, with the IFC and Jerry, you know, yeah. the current executive director came, and as well as, it was the same day as the Unity Walk. Okay. You know, and so it was really that, you know, we were able to celebrate that because, you know, Clark Lobenstein was the cause, you know, in terms of getting the, you know, unity among us, you know, in terms of that. Great. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm talking with Dr. Siva Subramanian and Tom Wolf about the life and work of the late great interfaith leader, Clark Lobenstein. So a couple of weeks ago, all three of us were at Clark's memorial service, and it was a, a very touching event. It was a full house with a lot of beautiful stories, um, and uh, actually a number of them talking about how how Clark was this bridge builder and and uh, the conduit for for bringing in communities. Uh, I was able to record a a few reflections with some of the attendees who also testified to that. So let's uh, let's take a listen to that piece. My name is Bill Aiken. I am the retired director of the uh, Sopagakai Buddhist Center, and uh, it's been my pleasure to know Clark since about 1995. I wanted to share the memory of uh, establishing our Buddhist Center in Washington, and, and Clark was a huge help uh, in that process. Uh, we uh, faced some misunderstandings and some uh, suspicion from our new neighbors in, in Northwest Washington about what would it mean to have a Buddhist center coming into their neighborhood? And so Clark gave very generously of his time and effort during then to, he wrote an op-ed piece for the community a newspaper saying why he thought this would be good for the community. And then uh, on top of that, he would go with me to visit many with many neighbors and city officials. So he was just a, a huge bulwark of support. And I'm happy to say that the very first event we had at that Buddhist center was an IFC gathering, even before we had congregational gatherings. We had a, a meeting of the IFC council. And so I thought that was only appropriate because it was thanks to, to Clark's efforts and the, the support of the IFC, we were there in the first place. I'm Rajwan Singh. I represent the Sikh faith uh, at the IFC. And I met Clark in 1987. That was the first time the Sikh community got involved in the interfaith uh, setting or interfaith organization anywhere in America. And, uh, and Clark was very welcoming. Um, and we were such a new community, uh, although we have been here in the, in the United States for since late 1800s, but there was never kind of involvement of the Sikh community in an interfaith 
kind of um, engagement. Mm -hmm. So this was our this was our first engagement, and uh, Clark guided us really, uh, you know, like a big brother, and uh, giving us all the tips how how to, you know, present our thought process, our faith community's presence, our you know involvement in the Washington area. So that was very helpful. And finally, we were given the full membership in 1988. And since 1988, I've served on the board of the IFC, and I've learned a lot. And I will just say one thing, that I have become a better Sikh by being involved in the Interfaith Conference, because it gives me a better way to reflect upon my own faith and tradition and my own belief system in light of you know, other faiths on the table. So it's a wonderful experience. And this would not have been possible if a person like Clark was not leading and had open arms and really holding each faith community's hand to really becoming a very comfortable. Siva, I'm curious, following up on uh, what we were just talking about in your experience with, with helping to uh, facilitate the establishment of the Hindu Jain Temple Association here in the DC area, um, do you, I'm, I'm curious what it is that you think um, perhaps delayed the interfaith participation of communities like the Hindus or as uh, Rajwan Singh was talking about the Sikhs as well. Um, do you think that there's there was some aspect that uh, that maybe kept those communities at a distance initially? You know, this is something that we probably have to look at it in both ways. That is, the traditional um, Christian-Jew relations are m much more common by the time that the fresh batch of uh, immigrants came, especially after 1965, um, where there was a huge wave in terms of a lot of different immigrants came. Which, by the way, enriched this country, you know, and uh, definitely, you know, <laughs> and uh, so there was a newness to the community. They're still mm. trying to find ways in terms of who is who and what is what, and so that was one happening on one side, and mm. then the other side is because of the relationship, you know, for example, including the IFC, was the formation of the Abrahamic faith. There was some hesitancy to reach out to the other, and especially the faiths that they had no ideas, mm. you know, as to what it was. And, uh, and so there was some degree of uh, slowness, you know, in terms of assessing each other. And, and I think this is where I think Clark was really, because what you introduced him as in terms of lived in multiple countries, in, including, you know, born in China, mm -hmm. and then so it's a different culture, ethics, and all those things. And so he was able to look at this, you know, differently as truly universal interfaith. That means including all the religions. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are as many religions as there are there. And so then that is why initially it was a slow reach out for um, participating Mm -hmm. And then the Sikh community, and then mm -hmm. um, you know the Hindu Jain communities mm -hmm. participated, and subsequently, you know the Baha'i, the Zoroastrian, Buddhist, mm -hmm. you know all of those communities did. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it was a mutual, you know, uh, 
uh, slowness, you know. Mm. Uh, like Rajan was saying, making helping folks to feel comfortable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Tom, what about you? I'm curious if if you have any thoughts about the ways in which, under the um, leadership of of Clark Lovenstein, the IFC helped to bring in these these new groups. What what was the the tone that you that you saw? Well, what I'm hearing, and I was I didn't come till 1997. Mm. So when I arrived the work had already been done mm. that was the inclusive part. Mm -hmm. But what I saw happen when we did the teaching about religion book for the social studies teachers, and Shiva, Siva mentioned it, that particularly the Islamic faith, to have an umbrella group that could bring together all the <laughs> different denominations, if you will, of Islam, and they vetted their own work, and then they wrote their own chapter. In the book, we had each of the 11 religions uh, answer the same 44 questions. But by the time I got there, the inclusiveness had already, one level of inclusiveness mm -hmm. had already been established. Mm -hmm. But then with the publication of the book and the five years it took to have each religion vet their own chapter, that was sort of the next stage. But it's very interesting for me to hear that it was all done by the time I showed up in '97. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it seems like this. Th what I'm what I'm hearing from you all is that this this interfaith work it it in a certain way happens in stages, right? Yeah. Because the the previous generation, or even maybe two generations ago, we can say it was an amazing thing, even for the leadership to be at the table together. Right, just the fact that you would right. walk into a room and there would be leaders from these different religions right. at the same table together was was a feat in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then the education piece, as you're talking about, Tom, that's sort of the next stage of it. Well, now we're here. Mm -hmm. Well, do we actually understand what we're all about, right? Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about about the star project and and what was the what was the goal with that because that was something that was implemented under during Clark's time yes. as well yeah that was that was the major project that I participated in with uh, DC Rao and mm -hmm. Imam Jahari Abdul Malik mm -hmm. and that to me is the next as you said it was the next stage uh, actually Charles Haynes had done the work with the Bush administration to guarantee that you could learn about religion in the public school system as a comparative religions course, that's well, it had to be comparative mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. It used to be that teaching about religion was you brought the Baptist preacher in and the gymnasium, <laughs> yeah. and so the federal government actually stopped right. teaching about religion. Right. But the first well, skewed that way, I guess. Yes. Yes. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see the look on Tom's <laughs> face there. <laughs> but Charles did this incredible work through the First Amendment project to guarantee your right to learn about religion. So we piggybacked off of that work. So when we did the STAR work, it took five years. And I think it needs to be said that the 11 religions in the Interfaith Conference represent 82% of the world's population, mm. our adherence mm. to one of those faiths. So we first we had to come up with the 44 questions, and then each group had to vet their own community. And that's why the social studies teachers love this book because the average social studies teacher doesn't have the resources to go through 11 religions. Right. And it's not a scholar coming in and saying this is what the Hindus say or the Jains mm -hmm. say or the Muslims say. Each community vetted their own chapter, which mm -hmm. also forced them to bring their different denominations together. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing process, and I believe it's an amazing gift to the world. Mm -hmm. As 
do the social studies teachers. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to another clip recorded at the recent memorial service for interfaith leader Reverend Clark Lobenstein. started at the Interfaith Conference in 2002, part-time. And one of my favorite memories of Clark was that his work was involved with people. And the paper didn't seem to matter very much, but it did accumulate. And so I can remember the time we were moving offices, and I walked into his workspace and there were piles of paper 18 inches high on every surface and on the floor. One had to be very careful not to tip anything over. But Clark knew exactly where everything was, and when he needed to find something, he would immediately go to that spot and pull out the document. What he reminded me is that Interfaith work isn't always about reports and paperwork or doing the filing, but it's about the people and the conversations and the interactions together. Salam alaikum, uh, Rizwan Jaka. Uh, chair of the board of the Adams Center and board member of the Interfaith Conference in Metropolitan Washington. You know, we remember Reverend Dr. Clark Lobenstein, you know, for his um, inspiring leadership and, uh, you know, known him since 2005. You know, uh, my, my kids, my six kids and my wife and I, you know, uh, grew up in the Interfaith Conference in Metropolitan Washington from concert to concert, MLK service to MLK service. His ministry of interfaith work, you know, inspired us and it's part of our family, part of our community. And as I said, he will be, you know, the Reverend and Pastor Emeritus of the Adams Center of, uh, you know, our family and of our community. And we truly appreciate uh, his leadership and we thank Reverend Carroll and, uh, uh, and the whole family uh, for their dedication. Peace be with you. My name is Simeon Kreisberg. I'm a member of the Jewish faith community and I worked with Clark Lobenstein for about three decades on the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington where I served as an officer and a board member. One of my fondest recollections of Clark is my service with him on the finance committee of the Interfaith Conference. We were responsible for establishing the annual budget and then tracking to see how well we were doing. Invariably, uh, when we were troubled by the gap between revenues and expenses, Clark would always say, God will provide, God will provide, somehow the resources will be there. Now, I must admit, I was one of the doubters, but more often than not, somehow the revenue would come in. A, a donor would appear from nowhere, a faith community would step up and, and add to its contributions. Somehow or other, the revenue, often, more often than not, um, despite my doubts, would actually be there. And on those occasions when it wasn't there, Clark would say, 
that's just a message from God that we have to redouble our efforts to find the resources to do what needs to be done in this community. Now, looking back on all these years on the Finance Committee, I would have to say that the ledger of expenses and income of the IFC was probably not a great moment compared to the ledger of life. And what strikes me is that in the ledger of life, Clark's ledger was always in surplus. A surplus of faithfulness, a surplus of hopefulness, a surplus of service, a surplus of love. And for that, I think we all enjoyed a surplus of blessings. So, Tom, you uh, you also served on the IFC's financial committee. Um, can you share uh, some of the stories you were you were sharing with us a little bit before? Some stories and reflections about that time working with Clark on this aspect of running the organization. It's true, Simeon. <laughs> I felt like I should say Amen <laughs> multiple times actually yes. during those uh, brief messages. But yes, I was treasurer for over a decade, and. Uh, one of the main moments I had in meeting Clark where he really lived spiritually was uh, we did go through a tight period. Simeon was chair of the finance committee and I was treasurer. One thing I wanted to say was my treasurer's report for 10 years was the Sermon on the Amount. <laughs> Bada boom, yes. And it's still actually uh, when Riswan took over as treasurer, he called it the Sermon right, on the Amount right. too. But there was this moment in the parking lot at IFC where it was becoming obvious to me and to Simeon and the, the committee that we were going to have to lay off some staff. Hmm. Clark did not particularly care for that information. <laughs> and we were out in the parking lot, and Clark came up to me and put his arm around me. He said, Tom, it's a lack of faith in Jesus to do a budget. <laughs> 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 so you can imagine as treasurer, and I'm a businessman. I've run my own company now for 45 years. <laughs> That's not the guiding principle that you used in your business. <laughs> no, I don't think the business would be there. And that's basically what I said to Clark. But I had, but what I'd really like to stress, as Simeon did, that the ledger was not the most important thing to the reverend, mm. obviously. And and I said to him, well, the, you know, that Clark, that may be true that J Jesus will provide, and and I was, but the thing I want to get across is his faith in Christ was just total. Mm. And then he taught me one of the main lessons, which uh, Jahari referred to at his uh, memorial service, was the idea of both and. And he said to me, well, we obviously disagree. You want to cut staff, and I want to believe in Jesus. He said, but it doesn't have to be an either or. We can do both and. And I would have to say that Clark, one of the things I most admire about him was when we finally did cut staff by a third. It was mm. not a minor yeah. thing. Yeah. It was very painful. Mm -hmm. He, he he came up big. He, he was able to deal with that in a loving and respectful way, even though he really didn't particularly care for budgets and spreadsheets and such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that was I, I, when I look back on my relationship with Clark, that was one of the major moments because he said it can be a both and. We can mm -hmm. have a budget 
and we can believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that loving embrace that we also heard about from, from Judy uh, Bond, uh, faithful administrator at the, at the IFC for many years, um, you know, that was something that, that definitely impressed me. You know, I came to serve on the board of, of the IFC um, in, in 2010. Um, actually, I think, it was, I think it was at the, um, the, the Quaker meeting on, on Adelphi Road, I think, right? There's, that was the first meeting that I, that I went to. The turkey uh, dinner, we had the big turkey dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the first, uh, the first uh, experience that I had with the IFC was walking in the door, not quite knowing what to expect or who, to, who I was going to meet there. And Clark was right there at the front door and gave me a nice firm handshake and a smile and welcomed me right in, you know. So it, it, it was a great start. To um, to that experience, um, serving on the board of the IFC, um, but you know, by then Clark was already in his later years before retirement. So I do feel like I missed out on seeing him a bit in his prime. And um, you know, I've thought over the years that you know this guy's a, he's, he was the head of this major interfaith organization for over thirty years. He saw oversaw the expansion from a, a Jewish Christian. Muslim approach to interfaith and nearly a dozen traditions that were represented, um, not to mention all the dialogue and the social action projects and the, and, and the spin-off groups and so forth that emerged along the way. And I just feel like it, you know, it, it takes such an incredible vision and strength um, to do that. So I, I wonder if, if you all do, Siva, do you, do you feel like Clark was, was sort of the, uh, the strong leader out in front all the time, or was he more of a behind-the-scenes type of guy in his report? Approach? I mean, the interesting thing is he did both. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, in the early years, you know, he definitely, you know, led from the front, you know, in terms of to make sure he brought in people, he went, he went and tried to get the donations, sponsorships, and uh, all those stuff, and then started coming up with one after another projects, mm. programs. And uh, I mean, I mean, there's a whole list of things we have already said, you know, in terms of what he has done. But I think the first and foremost, I think I have to recall the f the food directory mm. that he did, emergency food, you know, directory mm -hmm. and shelters and all that. This is the annual. This directory is the that annual the directory IFC that publishes. IFC, and they, he has been doing that from back in the '80s, when no such directory was available. Mm -hmm. And it and lists all the social services that are that are uh, offered in the in the area, many of which are, are offered by faith-based groups and right. so forth. Not exclusively, but not exclusively, mm -hmm. but majority. And he was able to put that together, and it started with a few pages, and then to a book. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms mm -hmm. of that many services, he was able to identify. So he was leading from all those things in terms of how he would do, and then subsequently in the later years, by the time you know Tom and others. You know, joined the board has taken a much more active role. Mm. You know, in terms of, uh, and that is how it happened. The finance committee and uh, what you have to tell, otherwise he will be merry, <laughs> merrily going along. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of whatever that called for, mm -hmm. your staff to run one program or another or whatever you will recruit. Mm -hmm. And I have to say another thing. For quite some time, he will not draw his pay. Because there mm. was not m money in the kit, well. so but he will pay all the staff. Well. Okay, and so the board has to really 
you know, wrap our hands around in terms of to make sure, hey, listen, you know, we have to pay him as well. Tom, you know, one of the stereotypes that we hear about interfaith work and efforts is that, you know, everyone is, is just holding hands and singing together and it's kind of a vanilla uh, exercise. So I wonder if you have any um, instances to share when there was like a legitimate tension that was that was happening and there were maybe personality or theological clashes that that had to be overcome in the course of uh, this interfaith work. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You don't get the 11 major religions of the world together on a regular basis <laughs> without, <tension. laughs> without without some tension. Yeah, right. and, and uh, my spiritual teacher calls it necessary tension. Mm -hmm. it, it brings out the best in us if we handle it with respect. And I think there we're an example to America right now about how to deal with some serious differences with respect. Mm. But what comes to mind was we went to Dar el Hejra. We, what we do in the IFC is go to different houses of worship, right? you know, rotate. And we went to Dar el Hejra Mosque where Imam Jahari Abdul Malik was uh, Imam. And I had just learned Salat. Sanala Kermani had taught D.C. Rao and I yeah. Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Quran, and how to do prayer hmm. in an Islamic manner. So I got in line and I'm praying with the Muslims, which to me was not a contradiction at all. But Clark came up afterwards and he said, how can you as a Quaker Christian do that? How can you pray with the Muslims? Mm. And we had a, and again, Clark and I sat down for about an hour <laughs> and I said that to me there's no contradiction, particularly the Quaker version of Christianity, uh, particularly from William Penn. Uh, William Penn was actually condemned to death in the 17th century for seeing the, saying the light of God was in the Muslims mm. and the Jews. The, yeah, in 1668. And I shared that story with Clark and that it was just a different, he's Presbyterian. But there was a tension there because I saw no contradiction whatsoever to pray with Imam Jahari and his congregation in the rows like the Muslims do in Salat. But Clark, just as a Christian, couldn't do that. So there's one example of mm. a tension. The other one I wanted to mention is when the, the State Department actually had uh, Imam Jahari, Abdul Malik, and I go down and talk to a group of Saudis about the hatred in their textbooks toward the Jews. Hmm. And although Clark, Clark was intimately involved in that on a daily basis, but he didn't go with us. But You're talking about like a writing of a history that was very anti-Semitic in its, in its slant. Their textbooks, their, uh -huh. their uh, elementary school, uh, junior high school, and mm -hmm. high, what we would call high school textbooks. And that was a, boy, that was tense. And we confronted the 18 Saudi educators about This is it. you and Imam Johari yes. at the State Department yes. <laughs> confronting a delegation from Saudi Arabia. Well, it ended up, they, they, it was three delegations. That was the first time we did it. Then they sent two more delegations to the Interfaith Conference, and we spoke with them as well. Uh -huh. So who gets uh, diplomatic immunity when things get heated in that situation <laughs> yeah. when you're at the State Department? <laughs> well, the, the poor man from the State Department, we, didn't, we yeah. did not tell him. They were there to see how we were teaching Islam in the public school system, right. which they totally approved of. Okay. The yeah. delegation from the Saudi Arabia totally loved the way we were teaching Islam in the public school system. Okay. And then this, but then we brought out the textbooks, and the poor man from the State Department just his eyes got big, and he was like, "Whoa, whoa! You didn't tell me you were going to do this." <laughs> but there was definite. Uh, in fact, I would say that's one of the most tense moments mm. I've ever had in my life when mm. we actually realized that they uh, were going to engage with us in this vibrant conversation about the Quran and what it really taught. It was beautiful. Wow. But yeah, their textbooks, and it's not still, a joke, it's yeah. very tense. Their textbooks are not mm. acceptable in the, what they teach about Jewish people. 
Interesting. So far, we've been we've been reflecting on the life of our friend, Reverend Dr. Clark Lobenstein, who passed away last month. I'm curious how, uh, if each of you can share a little bit about what each of your traditions says about death and, and how you honor the dead in each of your communities. Siva, from, from Hinduism? Right. You know, it's going to be a little bit complex, so I need to give a little background, you know, before. And uh, so to talk about, you know, Hinduism believes in... Uh, Karma and reincarnation. Right. Of course, karma word is known for everybody at this point, reincarnation. So we don't believe in one life. So we believe in cycles of life. So birth and death are just two milestones in one's life. So it's always you celebrate the life that you have between the two milestones because you are sure that you are going to be born again again, you know, in uh, multiple cycles till you spiritually grow to be part of God. Mm. The second part is Hinduism believes the body is simply um, a, a vessel, if you want to call, and uh, with which ha- has the Atma, you know, which is the maybe equivalent to soul. Okay. And that is the divine spark in each one, living and non-living. And and so when a body dies, it is really like casting off a shirt hmm. and the old shirt and then taking on a new shirt. The atma continues the journey till that spiritual maturity comes. Hmm. So when somebody dies, obviously, like everybody else, there will be an emotional Mm -hmm. grief and stress, you know, you have to go through. And the way the Hinduism does is provide a structured way of doing this. Mm. In the first, I mean, also, primarily, we believe because this body is made of the five elements, you know, cremation is what is recommended. And so you return that body back to the elements. and, And then you follow for somewhere between 10 to 13 days. There are slightly different uh, things in different parts of India. And you follow that in a structured way, remembering all the stuff that, you know, that you related with that person and all that. Mm. And then on the 13th day, you do uh, a special, actually a dinner uh, or lunch, you know, mm. where, I mean, food is always important for Hindus, you know, in terms of it. And uh, exactly, (laughs) you know. And uh, so you you bring all the blessings of the departed and their ancestors, you know, in terms of it. So, and then every month for the first year, and then every year during the anniversary, you do special uh, function Mm. to recall and celebrate the dead. Beautiful. Tom, how about you from the Quaker tradition? Is it uh, is it similar? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, in some ways. Uh-huh. Uh, Quakers, as uh, Shiva just shared, believe that the body is just a shirt, if you will, mm. and that the soul is what matters. And the, the Quaker, uh, the, the thing that's most common to Quaker belief is that the light is within. And so if the person was a practicing Quaker, the idea is that the body is uh, basically not that important to the process, but to celebrate the light that was in that person and how it manifested. Mm -hmm. 
And then the thing that would be very different, uh, Siva had shared with me that he'd been to a Quaker funeral, is that it would be in, held in silence. Mm. And there would be no speaking except anyone would rise and speak to the light of that person. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very simple concept. And then the, the, what happens after death is pretty, it's changing. We believe in ongoing revelation, and many of us are coming to believe that the old Vedantic model is, is very uh, true. But, but I'll, I'll just stick to what the early Quakers believed, yeah. which would have been traditional Christianity. And they would say that then the the life of the the light of the person would go to Jesus, mm. Mm. and that the review would happen. God would review the ledger of life. The ledger of life. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Simeon. Surprises. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, and uh, then the person would get. You know, it's the, it really is the very much the the it's in Galatians, I believe. That God shall not be mocked, you will reap what you sow, mm. is the law of karma. Mm. Yeah. But it's God will not be mocked. I mean, it's such a perfect law, the yeah. law of karma, that the, the person will be uh, rewarded yeah. for their love and their service. So some, some commonalities in the this spiritual um, understandings mm. from Hinduism and, and Quaker tradition, uh, and then the, the cultural outward forms are... Different. Sound radically different. Yes, different. Yes, yes. I would say the biggest commonality between Vedanta and the Quakers is the belief in perfection. Mm. Yep. The Quakers always made the argument for perfection. They said the only difference between Christ and us was one thing, that he had removed his papa, I believe, his sin, and that when we got rid of our ignorance and foolishness, we would be that same light, and that's very much in common right. with the description yeah. of God-realization in the Vedanta. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing those reflections. You're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. I'm your host, Jack Gordon. We've been talking with Tom Wolfe of the Annapolis Quaker Meeting and Siva Subramanian of the United Hindu Jain Temple Association. This episode, we've been reflecting on the life and legacy of Reverend Dr. Clark Lobenstein, the founding director of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington. Stephen, Tom, we have the IFC's major annual event, the Interfaith Concert, coming up later this month. This year's concert will be held on Thursday, November 29th at Washington Hebrew Congregation. Some of the musical acts slated to perform are the Metropolitan Washington Baha'i Chorale, the Adams Beat Youth Ensemble, the Washington, D.C. Temple Choir, which was formerly the Mormon Choir of Washington, and the Avesta performers of the Zoroastrian community of Metropolitan Washington. And additionally, the concert will feature traditional Cambodian Buddhist dance and a special solo performance by Broadway performer Miss Sandra Turley, who is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So this sounds like a really rich program, as it always is, a, a feast of cultural and artistic expression. I'm curious, what have been some of your uh, memories from, from past concerts? Um, I was alluding to before, um, till it was actually got organized as Interfaith Concert, and this is the 40th year as Interfaith Concert. Right. So it is the 40th anniversary, anniversary of mm-hmm. that. And so it is actually coincides with, in terms of Clark's passing away, and I retired at the 35th anniversary of this year in the IFC, we honored him, mm. you know, at that time. And that was a moving, you know, uh, ceremony in terms of in addition to the concert. 
that people were able to recognize, you know, what he has done for 35 years. And uh, so this 40th year will be no exception, you know, to allude to his uh, uh, contributions to the interfaith uh, conference as well as, you know, this concert. There's always a, a great dessert reception yes. afterwards. From the uh, multiple faiths. Right, yeah, right, right. Multi, multi-faith dessert, <laughs> dessert. <laughs> dessert service as well. So, um, and, and obviously for those who've been involved with the pivotal work of the Interfaith Conference, they know that this is their major f- event for the year. Yes. So as we've been talking about honoring and furthering the legacy of the IFC's founding director, Reverend Clark Lobenstein, you know, what better way to support than to, to go to this uh, terrific concert and and I'm sure he will he will be in the minds and hearts of, of many people and and no doubt uh, mentioned frequently during the event. Dear listeners, if you want more information about the annual interfaith concert, be sure to check out ifcmw.org for more information. Again, the concert will be Thursday, November 29th at 7:30 p.m. at Washington Hebrew Congregation. The address is 3935 Macomb Street Northwest in Washington D.C. Tickets available at ifcmw.org. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank my guest Tom Wolf of the Annapolis Quaker Meeting and Dr. Siva Subramanian of United Hindu Jain Temple Association for joining me today to reflect on the life and legacy of the late great Dr. Clark Lobenstein. May his memory be a blessing. Glad to have you both here with me this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. And thanks as always to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller. And as always, a special shout out to Jeff Philosopher for all the great music. And thank you, dear listeners, for continuing to support our show here on Tacoma Radio. Last month during our fundraising week, you helped us raise over $30,000 to keep our beloved station going here in downtown Tacoma Park. We had dozens of listeners call and write in with contributions specifically naming Interfaith-ish, and I'm thrilled that we mean so much to you. So I've saved a very special Interfaith air horn salute for all of y'all. All right. Seriously, though, I had so much fun on our last episode here in the studio with my illustrious interreligious interlocutor, Sue Katz-Miller. Definitely go back and check out the show if you didn't catch us live. You can find all of our previous episodes of Interfaith-ish on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Leave us a rating or a review so more people can find out about our show. And as always, if there's Interfaith-ish you wish to dish, you can write us an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org. <laughs>